Welcome to the Cutting Edge Health Podcast with Jane Rogers, where we discuss science to help prevent cognitive decline. I listened in 2016 to a podcast where Dr. Dale Bredesen was interviewed. I'd never heard before the ability to prevent and even reverse Alzheimer's. It was an aha moment that changed my life. I already had subjective cognitive impairment, SCI as it is called, at 54 years old, the same age as my father's symptoms, and he later passed with Alzheimer's. I was scared and Dr. Bredesen provided me a lifeline. I did everything that his book, The End of Alzheimer's, said that I should do, and it worked. I'm incredibly grateful that now, six years later, I'm able to launch my own podcast to help others do the same thing that I just did. I'm honored to have as my guest today, Dr. Dale Bredesen, an internationally respected researcher into the causes of neurodegenerative diseases. He's a New York Times bestselling author with three books, The End of Alzheimer's, the End of Alzheimer's Program, and the First Survivors of Alzheimer's. He's currently the Chief Science Officer at Apollo Health, and he's a professor at UCLA. I broke the interview into two parts. He's got that much to say. Here's part one. So, I beat Alzheimer's in large part because of you, because of your research, because of your willingness to share with everyone, what you've done changed my life. And there are, there just aren't words to express how much I appreciate what you've done. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jane, and thank you for mentioning that. Um, there is nothing that makes my life better than to hear about people who had what is, was otherwise a terminal illness uh, and who got back to their families and back to their lives and back to their happiness and back to their future. Uh, so, and that's, that's why uh, I wrote the book, uh, The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. And it had seven people who gave their wonderful stories in there. And, and it's just, it's really heartwarming to see that. And that's really what, uh, you know, 30 years of research in our lab was all about. Let's find a way to attack this. Well, I read the book and I could relate to all the examples all the people who shared their stories. I thought, oh, that's me, that's me. As I'm sure many of in our audience right now are feeling the same way. So 800,000 Americans have died, approximately that many, have died so far from COVID-19. Right. And I have heard you say that of the currently living Americans, we're going to lose 45 million to Alzheimer's. Yep, so about 50 times, yep. It's scary, just, just scary. We, we had a vaccine for COVID-19. We finally were able to have a vaccine for smallpox and, and one for polio. But a vaccine and a pill are not on the horizon for this disease, are they? No, you know, and the, the fundamental problem here is that we understand what a virus is. You know, we have sequence, we have the variants, we know about Omicron and we know about Delta and all these different things. So it's a simple illness. You get it. It starts to replicate and you have to do something about it. You can target that problem. Now, of course, we know that the immune system is important. People realize, oh, my gosh, I got to get my zinc right. I got to get my vitamin D right. Got to get my glucose right and all those things because my immune system has to work right as well. But in general, it's about the virus. Alzheimer's is completely different. 
There has never been, as you know, agreement about what Alzheimer's represents. There are dozens of theories. You've heard people say it's type 3 diabetes. No, it's all about herpes in the brain. No, it's all about P. gingivalis from the dentition, which is getting into the brain. No, it's all about reactive oxygen species. No, it's about prions. It's about tau. It's about amyloid. So there has never been agreement. And most importantly, all of the treatments that have targeted these various things have failed. So it's critical, as you understand, it's critical to have an understanding of this that is predictive of treatment. So whatever your theory is, it has to make sense. It has to make sense with all the epidemiology. There are over 150,000 papers published on this illness. So it's got to make sense with the epidemiology, the microbiology, the pathology, the genetics, all of this, and nothing has done that. And therefore, as you know, one drug, one drug, one drug, it just hasn't helped this disease. Now, Jane, imagine for a minute that you just bought a driverless car. That's the future. We're going to be, you're going to be using driverless cars. Imagine that you just bought one and now it's just not working right. It's not braking correctly. It's hitting people when it shouldn't. Oh, gosh. Uh, and it's just not working right. It's, st it's stopping when it shouldn't stop, et cetera. So you take it in and you say to the mechanic, um, you've got to help me. There's something wrong with this very complex driverless car. And he says, well, you know, we'll fill it up with some gas. And, and then, you know, or, and if that doesn't work, we'll fill it up with a different kind of gas. And it's like, no, it's a more complicated system. And that's what's going on with our brains. We have a very, very complicated brain that has nearly one quadrillion connections inside your beautiful brain. And yet we keep going after these with one small molecule. Okay, let's try this drug. Let's try that drug. Let's try this drug. The brain is not that simple. So the, the bottom line here is you need to understand this is, this is network medicine, and you need to understand the players in the network, and then you need to go after them. And it's a little different for each person. So that's the future. Yeah, I know this works because it's worked for me. Yeah. But the exciting thing is I read about the research trial, the clinical trial you were just able to do. Results were last year, highly successful, a one of its kind, because you had, instead of, I will test this drug, right. you said, no, I'm going to test uh, a whole number of multivariables. What's your inf inflammatory load? What's your blood sugar level? What do your hormones look like? All those things. And when you are able to include in a clinical trial all those different parameters, to help the person individually, precision medicine, you found this really works, didn't you? Yes. So 84% of the people actually improve their scores. And it's important to point out in the drug trials, they're not seeing improvement. They're trying to look just at slowing the decline. And even that is barely working. So in the best case scenario, there was a 22% slowing in this drug that there was such controversy over recently, and understandably so. In our trial, you're actually seeing improvement in cognition in 84% of the people. So that's unheard of. And it's because for each of these people, we're looking at, as you said, what's the, is there insulin resistance? What's the status with the glucose? And what's the status with inflammatory burden? And are there specific pathogens? Have you changed your gut microbiome, which is critical? Um, and, you know, on and on and on. So all these things are critical. What's your vascular status? Part of the equation here is that 
you have to have appropriate energetics. When we looked in our research lab, when we looked at what Alzheimer's is, what is the fundamental nature of this disease? It's not a viral infection. The fundamental nature of this disease is that it is a network insufficiency. So in other words, you're not supplying enough energetics, whether it's because you have sleep apnea or whether it's because you have poor mitochondrial function or whether it's because the blood flow is not there, whatever it is, it's energetics, it's trophic activity, it's toxins, um, and it is uh, and it is your, 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 your various pathogens and inflammation. Those are the big four things. If you can optimize each of those as you're doing, you get tremendous results. And in fact, uh, Dr. Heather Sanderson, who's one of the practitioners who's doing a great job down in San Diego and has opened a wonderful assisted living facility called Marama and now a new one called Solsiri. As she points out, when people do the right things, you target the right things, you do have them do the right things, virtually everybody gets better. And you're going to expand that clinical trial now. Yeah. You've did 25 people in this first one. Now you're stepping up and saying, we want to do a bigger one with 100 folks. So, you know, Jane, when you're trying to do something different and when you're actually going after the way this works scientifically, what you find is that there's such backward thinking about everyone's stuck with what drug are you going to use, et cetera. So when we went a few years ago to the IRBs, First of all, we got turned down in 2011 by the IRB. They wouldn't even let us do this trial because they're saying, you know, you're doing something that is more about a network instead of about one drug. And that's the way trials should be, one drug, which is, which is really crazy for this disease. So we finally got them to approve it. It took all the way till 2019. But they said, well, you first have to do a proof of concept. You can't do a control group. You're just going to look at historical controls. So that's what we did. We got very good results that supported this next upcoming trial, which now is looking at a randomized controlled trial where we'll have people who who don't who do the standard of care for nine months delay, and then we'll be able to start the program at the end of the nine months versus people who started on day one. Mm-hmm. So we're very excited about that. Furthermore, as you know, this field is continuing to progress. There's a tremendous amount that can be done. And people will be able to do testing and treatments that were not available even a year or two ago. Things like looking at epigenetics for their biological age, for their biological brain aging, which will be really exciting. Um, Looking at phosphotal within the blood that was not available before. So I think we'll have better and better looks at what's actually driving the illness in these people. I want to talk to you further about the things that you're seeing, the future, what's exciting. But one other question before we leave this. So we now know through your trials that this is successful. How can we, and I'm sure this is the question that keeps you up at night, how can we roll this out to more people? How can we make it maybe just a little bit easier because you really have to be motivated to do it? And I don't often find people as motivated as we need to be to get this done. It's it's a lifestyle change. It's important, but it, it really takes some effort. And critics say it's expensive and difficult. How can we how how can we roll this out so that all of my neighbors can participate? This is such a great question and you're right. And my wife who is a functional medicine mm-hmm. physician and I discuss this all the time. Um, and she always says, you know, you have to apple it, you have to make it uh, straightforward. And here's the here's the thing that you can't make it 
so simple that it doesn't work. So this right. is a complex problem. Your brain has complex issues and you have to identify those, step one, and then you have to address those, step two. Um, on the other hand, if you make it uh, so complicated, you're going to hit all the things, but you're only, as you said, you're only going to have a few people who will actually do these. Mm-hmm. So the way to go is a tiered system. And let me just take one moment and address your point about expense. So mm-hmm. here's the point. The drug that just came out originally was $56,000 per year plus additional scans, et cetera. It was going to end up being about $100,000 per year. Now, they have dropped the price on it. And it doesn't work. There's still, and it doesn't work. And you're going to get about, it's going to still cost about $50,000. $50,000 a year for something that causes brain swelling and brain hemorrhage and doesn't work and just unfortunately killed someone a few weeks ago, or I should say was associated with a death in someone who used it. Uh, and so, you know, this is a huge problem. If, on the other hand, you don't do anything and you go into a nursing home, um, then you're going to spend about $100,000 a year on a nursing home. Now, the average person who develops Alzheimer's spends $350,000 by the time they pass away. It's, hor- it's a horrible expense. It is a, it's, a, it's the most expensive problem in terms of health in the country. So what we're doing, yes, it's expensive. It is less than 10%, more like 2 to 5% of that. So actually, you're, it's a good financial investment if you look at it that oh, way. Oh, that's a good way to put but it. But yes, it costs you hundreds of dollars. Uh, t- the typical initial evaluation is close to $1,000 to look at that. But again, compared to $100,000, this is really helping you. And it's going to give you a much better outcome. So you do need to look at this. People, this has been one of the problems because we're so used to being told there's nothing you can do. People just say, well, you know, I'm not going to try. Well, if you you take this seriously and actually make this a high priority item, then, you know, you do just as you've indicated, people do well and we hear about it all the time. So that's the goal. Now, Mm -hmm. in the long run, it's going to be a combination of some targeted drugs, a few, plus an overall precision medicine type or functional medicine or network medicine sort of uh, protocol that is personalized. That's going to be the goal. But we have to get everybody thinking in the same way to make that understandable. And you know that, that's the way things are going. So as, as people say, to some extent, we're building the plane as we're flying it. But that's always the tough thing because you're trying to enhance this, just as you say. Now, I do think the future is going to be a tiered system. So here's what will happen. For public health, anyone who hits 45, you get evaluated. You get a cognoscopy, as we say. And so you're going to look at, just as we all know, when we turn 50, we should get a colonoscopy, 45 or 50. We should get a colonoscopy. If you hit 45 or if you're already past 45, please get a cognoscopy. That's easy to do. It's a set of blood tests. It's an online cognitive assessment, which takes about 30 minutes, very easy. And then if you already have symptoms or you're scoring poorly on the test, please also get an MRI with volumetrics. But if you're not, don't worry about it. You don't have to do that. So you're going to get this initial thing and get on active prevention. Mm -hmm. 90% of the people will never have a problem if they're on active prevention. By the way, we've never had a single person who actually did the prevention and who started out when they were asymptomatic and yet still developed dementia. So the problems are when people don't do this and you keep going, you keep doing the wrong things, and then ultimately, and then people will say, well, I'm going to put it off because it's probably not Alzheimer's. And then the doctor says, well, oh, sorry, it's Alzheimer's. There's nothing I can do. So that'll take care of most of the people. Now, 
a small percentage of people will then say, oh, wait a minute, I am beginning to have some problems or I haven't done enough. Okay, now we take the next tier. Those people will have a little more extensive testing. They will work with a health coach and a and a physician who's trained and then do the right things. These are the people who just are beginning in this second phase, which is called SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. A very small number of those will then continue to progress. Okay, they need to have additional. And then the ones that continue to progress need to go actually into the hospital for a couple of days um, and looking at, okay, what is being missed here? What we find is that when people are continuing to progress, either something is being missed or they are not doing the right things. They're not getting themselves into the right biochemistry for making and maintaining new synapses. And as a simple example, um, I'm sure you know uh, Julie G. We've worked with Julie for years, who is APOE 4-4. So she's a very, very high risk group. The vast majority of people who are 4-4 uh, are destined to get Alzheimer's if they don't get on active prevention. So she already had symptoms. She did very, very well. Uh, after several years, she was now getting a little worse. Turned out, we said, well, something's being missed. Um, started doing additional testing, and it turned out she had an undiagnosed Babesia infection. Mm -hmm. And when that was treated, she's done very, very well. And she got, went from you know, ninth, thir 35th percentile to 98th percentile. You know, she wrote a significant part of the second book with me. She's just an amazing, uh, brilliant uh, human, a real citizen scientist. So um, she's a great example. And this is the sort of thing we see again and again and again. So I think that's the way to make this available to everybody. There's some simple things. Do that at the beginning. Now, if you're, if you're going past that because of something we don't know, some toxins you're being exposed to, we can deal with that. And part of that beginning tier would be to have your genetics done. So you know if you're APOE4. Absolutely. And it's easy to do. And, you know, that's the other thing. When you have a model of a disease that's incorrect, this idea that it, you know, it's just about reactive oxygen species mm -hmm. or it's just about amyloid or something like that, it tells you to do things that are all wrong. And one of the things that's been said over the years is don't bother to get your APOE checked because there's nothing you can do about it. And nothing could be further from the truth. Everybody should check their status. And if you'll allow me a moment to preach here, I apologize please. for that. But yes, please, everybody, everybody should know their APOE status. Three quarters of the population um, is APOE4 negative. So you want to know if you have a single copy, two copies, or zero copies of APOE4. Um, so the three quarters, your chance of your in, during your lifetime, about 9% of getting Alzheimer's. Not terribly high, uh, but it's not zero either. So please still get on active prevention. But if you're APOE4 positive, you really want to focus even more. Single copy, that's 75 million Americans. Your chance is about 30% during your lifetime. And then if you have two copies, and that's about 7 million Americans, and unfortunately the vast majority don't know it, your chance is over 50 and close to nine, in some studies, close to 90% that you will develop Alzheimer's. So please get on active prevention. Virtually none of these people need ever develop Alzheimer's disease. Let's make it a rare disease. We should be able to make it a rare disease. And one other key point here is that we have something that people call MCI, and I'm sure you're aware of this, mild cognitive impairment. 
That is a horrible term that's hurt a lot of people. And here's why. When you develop cognitive decline and you're on your way to Alzheimer's, you go through four stages. So the first stage, you have the beginning of the biochemical changes. You can pick it up on a PET scan or in spinal fluid, but you have no symptoms. Second phase, you have subjective cognitive impairment, as we talked about just a moment ago. And that lasts on the uh, order of 10 years. So it lasts about 10 years. People know there's something wrong, but they often put things off. Well, you know, my spouse isn't that great either. Everything's probably going to be okay. It's probably not Alzheimer's. That's You really want to get in one of those first two phases. The third phase, which should be called relatively advanced Alzheimer's disease, is called mild cognitive impairment. This is like telling someone you have mildly metastatic cancer. Don't worry. And so people say, oh, it's just mild cognitive impairment. Come back next year. There's really not that much you can do about it anyway. Come back next year. And again, this is a late stage of the disease. We want to get in earlier. But the good news is in our trial, People had either mild cognitive impairment or actual full-on Alzheimer's, which is the fourth and final stage, and they did very, very well. So please don't wait. As you get farther and farther along, you have to do more and more, just like any other complex chronic illness. So please, please, if you don't get on prevention, which I recommend everyone do, then at least get on as early reversal as possible. You know, I was amazed in looking at the results from that first clinical trial that you did, that you had a number of individuals who were um, classed as mild cognitive impairment. So their right. scores, um, when they were asked what year it is and what, what month is it and when is your birthday, some pretty simple right. things, they couldn't answer them. Like their right. score was 22 or 24. I remember I sat in with my mother when she had that done at her family family doctor, and she didn't remember what year it was. And so they labeled her a 22. In your clinical trial, those 22s, they jumped up to the oh, very top cool. tier, to 30, which is completely normal under this protocol. We had two people who were actually at 19, and this is out of a total of 30. Uh, on this, on the MOCA test, this is the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. And these are people who have, uh, you know, they've actually crossed into that fourth phase of Alzheimer's disease. And they both ended up with 30s, perfect scores. So you can gain So it. yeah, mm -hmm. do the right things. And, and as you indicated, it's not always that easy. You know, you kind of just take it one step at a time. And I think the health coaches are so helpful because they can help people stick with it, keep optimizing, do the right things. Because this is complex, don't try to do everything at once. Start doing the right things, add, keep optimizing, and then keep tweaking to see, okay, can I maybe get things a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. Mm -hmm. We have people now who are now 10 years on this protocol that, mm -hmm. was, that we used in the trial um, who have improved and stayed improved for 10 years. So again, that's unheard of. If you, uh, on, the, on the drugs, if you get a little bit better, you go right back to declining again. So um, we're very excited that when you actually do the right thing on the protocol, you sustain your improvement because you're now attacking the causes of the decline. So let's look to the future. It's going to be exciting. I'm sure you see interventions on the horizon that we don't have quite yet, but you see them coming. Can you think of some? Oh my gosh, yeah, there's, there's so much. And we look all the time at where this is headed. How can we continue to enhance it? make it better. There's so much. So one of the things that we're already beginning to do um, is now to apply the same sort of approach. Because what it really says is, when you have a neurodegenerative disease, and this has been the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure, 
it really is representing a mismatch between the supply of the system, of the neural subsystem, and the demand. You've got more demand than you do supply. So you're now involuting, you're losing, whether it's ALS, frontotemporal dementia, whether it's Lewy body disease, vascular dementia, Alzheimer's, what have you. So we're actually starting with macular degeneration. That's another great example where the demand outstrips the supply. And so part of this is going to be adapting it for the each has each subsystem has its own specifics so you need to do things a little differently for each of them the second thing is as you said there are new things that haven't been available before so one of the things is you can now get very rapid feedback looking at epigenetics and say okay have we addressed the appropriate methylation pathways, the appropriate detox pathways? Have we addressed these things? Now, we've been looking at these biochemically. What happens to your homocysteine? What happens to your C4A and TGF-beta-1, which are markers of inflammation? What happens to these? What happens to the pathogens? Things like that. But we'll now be able to see the response more quickly. So you'll be able to say, ah, I'm on the right track or I'm on the wrong track. If you look at something like an MRI, that takes months to change. And by the way, in the trial, we did see improvements in the MRIs, not just in the cognitive testing. So we're very enthusiastic about that because it provides confirmation that we're on the right track. Mm -hmm. So part of this is going to be getting quicker feedback. Also, it's going to be able to, we're going to be able to look and see, okay, did you improve the blood markers like phosphotau telling us that the brain is beginning to heal itself. There's going to be more use of stem cells in the future. Right now what's happening is, as you know, stem cells are being tried and being trialed as monotherapies. It's a little bit like, I mean, they're a wonderful idea, except that it's a little bit like trying to build back a house as it's burning down. You've got all these things damaging the brain and you're just gonna try to throw stem cells and nothing else in there might work for a short period of time, but it's not the optimal way to go after this. Have you done stem cells yet yourself? I have not done them myself. And actually- I've, I haven't either. I've been in discussion with a guy who's an expert at this, and and now I'm, I'm about to turn 70, uh, and I'm, I'm getting up there. Uh, at some point, I will probably do that. Um, you know, as part of an overall program uh, to, uh, you know, to improve my, my health span. Speaking of getting older, I just turned 60, you turned 70. There are recent studies that show that if we can slow aging, then we can slow the age-related diseases that come with it, like problems cardiovascularly, problems with your um, brain. What do you think about that line of thought saying, should we work on some of the anti-aging things to help slow Alzheimer's? Great point. It's half the equation. So here's the thing. As you indicated, a piece of this is your aging rate. And some beautiful studies uh, that just have, have appeared from a number of people, including Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, um, who also uh, published and wrote a beautiful book called Younger You. Uh, so this is, this is a wonderful thing. And also Dr. Levine, who wrote uh, True Age. These are people are showing for the first time that you can actually gauge a person's biological age. So, you know, Tom Brady's 44, but his biological age is probably about 33 or so. Um, he does not act or look like a 44-year-old average human. So this is telling us where do you stand? 
Um, and of course, people have talked about things like telomeres and, also, and other things as well, but these are looking at, at uh, methylome. So it's a one way to look at your biological age. And so numerous laboratory studies over the years do suggest exactly what you said, that when you slow the aging process, you also delay the changes in health span that we associate, the loss of health span that we associate with aging. People begin to develop arthritis and cardiovascular disease and dementia and things like that. But as I say, that's half of the equation. The other half is that we are, as I said to Dave Asprey, um, you know, half of aging is you suck at living. So the, the issue here is you're doing the wrong Your thing. lifestyle's a mess. Exactly. <laughs> and those are things where, you know, the, the changing in aging is not going to help you that much. If you have metabolic syndrome, you've got a leaky gut, you're eating the wrong things, you have a sedentary lifestyle, these things are horrible for you. The good news is we now know it and we can actually measure the impacts that each of these things is having. There's been a lot of interest in you know, senolytics uh, lately as well. So there are all these things that are going on. And yes, when you do the right things, now you're starting to look at the true aging process, the underlying you know, endogenous aging pro uh, process. But until then, there's so much that we're doing that's actually hurting ourselves. For example, many people end up with cognitive decline, not realizing a key contributor is that they're living in a moldy home with mycotoxins. These molds actually produce mycotoxins. Doctors are not looking for that. They're not measuring it. And yet we know that these are contributors. And we usually find uh, around 10 different contributors. When we see someone who truly has cognitive decline, we, it's rarely one contributor. They often have some insulin resistance. They often have some changes in their oral microbiome. They often have leaky gut. They often have some sleep apnea or some, some desaturation, at least, uh, at night while they're sleeping. So important to evaluate these. So we need to have the physicians understand, and we've now trained over 2,000 from 10 different countries and all over the U.S. We need to have people look at these various things to understand why each person is undergoing cognitive decline and then target those things to get best outcomes. I had my biological aging done. Ah, That's a scary kind of thing. Sure. And I'm only, I'm 60, but my biological age is 59. So I still have something to work on to get it. And you can get it lower. That's 10 years younger. Well, and that's the other thing, as people have pointed out, you now, this is what uh, Dr. Fitzgerald uh, and Dr. Levine showed, that you can actually do things to lower that. So reducing your biological age is a whole new field. Lots of people very interested in this. Um, and more and more, we understand what you can do to achieve that. So you don't have any, you, you, we talked about stem cells. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on, we know blood sugar is one of the drivers when it's not working right in your body. It's one of the drivers for cognitive decline. And I've seen research that if you go on metformin, even if you're not diabetic, it still helps your own blood sugar and it, it prolongs a life. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And this is a, this is, comes up all the time. It's a great point. Um, so Dr. Robert Lustig has a wonderful book called Metabolical about all the issues and mm -hmm. the metabolic issues. And as you say, um, part of the problem is that we are attempting to live as a species 
in a way that we were not evolutionarily designed to live. We were evolutionarily designed to live with very small amounts of sugar. We've now, because people like it and it tastes good, um, people just eat massive, massive. And and literally, it's like, you know, jumping off a building. It's simply we were not set up to do that. Our bodies don't take that. They literally are falling apart because they're doing it. It's one of the more common things. There's also, you know, the processed food, all the issues with with dyslipidemia and on and on and on. So, yes, we are damaging our bodies each day. And that's one of the most important things. Now, here's where I have a little bit of a problem with metformin. For all of these different, uh, these pharmacological interventions, they're attempting to trick your body into doing the right thing when it's doing the wrong thing. It's much better to do the right thing. It's much better. So if you abs- if you actually do appropriate fasting and have a low-carb diet, we recommend a, you know, a plant-rich, uh, ketogenic, uh, mildly ketogenic diet uh, with appropriate fasting periods of 12 to 16 hours. Of course, there's also the fasting-mimicking diet uh, that Dr. Walter Longo uh, has uh, described and researched So there are lots of ways to get at this in a much more appropriate way. Now, when you take metformin, what you're actually doing is preventing your body. You're inhibiting your body from making the ATP that it's trying to make. And therefore, you get stuck with more AMP, which is the lower energy. You don't have that ATP energy. Okay, so your body recognizes that. It, it thinks it's fasting. And so now you activate AMP kinase, you know, you get a, you get this kind of longevity effect. But again, if you do it the right way, you're actually going to get even more benefit. If you take metformin, there was a study a few years ago that showed that people who had taken metformin did increase their risk for Parkinson's and increase their risk for Alzheimer's. So the, the, the region that's inhibited in your mitochondria by metformin is the same it's the same molecular complex that's inhibited by rotenone which gives you parkinsons so now if you do it with right with metformin yes you're just tweaking it mildly that's the idea but you're really giving yourself a mild poison so that you can trick your body into doing the right thing so much better to do the to do the right thing for do the right thing the right Mm -hmm. outcome yeah so that you know for some people they may think that's the right Mm -hmm. thing fine great uh but beware be careful you may have some side effects um, from that drug good explanation you've been listening to the cutting edge health podcast created and hosted by jane rogers The website is CuttingEdgeHealth.com. We hope you enjoyed the show and would very much appreciate your writing a review. They help a lot and we read each one. Any information shared on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Guest opinions are their own. This podcast is not responsible for the veracity of their statements. The comments expressed are not medical advice. Do not use any of this information without first talking to your doctor. This podcast and Jane Rogers disclaim responsibility for any adverse effects from the use of any information presented. Thank you for listening and have a beautiful day.